This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's been a rough start to the year on GTA roads. This past week, two pedestrians were killed in two separate collisions. One was a hit and run. The victim of that collision was a 26-year-old woman who was killed by a driver operating a tractor-trailer in North York. The other incident took place in Brampton, where a male pedestrian died. And on January 4th, a 65-year-old man died after being struck by the driver of a vehicle near Jarvis Street and Gerard Street East. That was also a hit-and-run. Yet the authorities keep telling us that the much-praised Vision Zero plan is working. But is it? Mayor John Tory says he will be consulting with Toronto police, transportation staff and road safety advocates about the need to increase penalties for drivers who are using our roads recklessly and with utter disregard for the lives of others. To discuss the ongoing challenges around road safety, Libby Snymer was joined by Toronto City Councillor Stephen Holliday and Toronto Police Sergeants Jason Kraft and Brett Moore. We started the year off again. We're talking about failed to remain collisions. It is a phenomenon that's uh, it isn't new, but uh, it, it does seem uh, that there's a higher frequency. Um, even if it's not statistically correct, it just seems that way. And I think that's what we're getting as a feedback from people. They're concerned. There's lots of questions after these types of uh, these crashes that involve people leaving the scene, and uh, we need people to talk about it because um, it, it is a big problem. And uh, it, it's uh, it's one of those investigations that uh, for us at Traffic Services that there's no higher level of response, right? Our officers all chip in. Um, we pull all the resources and um, it, it's uh, it's uh, it's one of those where um, we've got, we're getting our heads wrapped around but uh, we need help from the public constantly and video is seems to be more often than not a, a source of that evidence that helps us steer these cases speaking of that was my next question sergeant Kraft. i mean what are these people thinking there are so many cameras on the road and and people you know video everything what would be going through their heads to think that you can get away with this in the case of the tractor-trailer driver, mm-hmm. is it actually possible he would know that he hit somebody? For sure, I was there yesterday, and uh, we were, you know, our investigators are speaking with the the, the driver and the and the business uh, involved. But uh, that's definitely a factor. But that's uh, that won't be determined until we sort of take the statements, look at the evidence, and whatnot. Um, a lot of this is, is around. It's not so, so much a criminology, but like a psychology thing of the sort of the reasons people flee. There is some research that's done. Uh, we've looked at some of it. We've had conversations around it, and, and it seems that there's that initial you know guilty mind, right? So we see in the research that I've read anyways, it says there's criminality involved. The person's a suspended driver. They're impaired. Um, They've done something that they're running away from. The good news is the average person does the right thing. They stop. They, they take responsibility. They exchange info as they need to. But we're seeing in at least nine of our fatal crashes last year, somebody hit somebody, 
took off and fled the scene. And so um, it, it is a psychology issue, and it's something that's the research would point towards those things uh, of of, uh, of criminality. But um, it, there, there's no easy, clear cut answer. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, each one is unique, and uh, it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to investigate. And um, it quite often it's uh, into the forensics. That's when it's sort of that CSI factor kicks in. We do a lot of work with Center of Forensic Sciences, uh, looking at trace evidence that we collect from the scenes um, and, and things like that. So it's um, it, it's something we're definitely aware of and and, uh, and paying attention to. Councillor Holliday, yesterday, I think it was that the mayor was saying he's going to consult about stiffer penalties. Is that the answer? I think it's part of it. Um, you know, this is a very complex problem that's before us. Uh, Many of us have lived in the city for a long time, and it you know it feels like things are getting worse. And you can connect that with a few things that are out there. Um, populations are rising, congestion is rising, and and frankly, I think people's attention on what they're doing is decreasing. There's so many more distractions. Um, so those are those are factors that are contributing to the issue. But you know, part of the mix is making sure that there are consequences out there. And enforcing a culture that, you know, people feel that they really need to make sure they're following the law and paying attention. And uh, maybe there's people out there that think, well, I can get away with this or, uh, you know, I'm not likely to get a ticket. Uh, and maybe some of those people that flee the scenes are, are not trying to take uh, responsibility for their actions. So, you know, I think that enforcement and those consequences is a big part of the solution. Sergeant Kraft, what would you like to leave us with? Just that uh, road safety is a shared responsibility. Everybody has to identify their own personal risks and and act according to those risks. Um, whether the pedestrian is, has the right of way or, or the, the vehicle has the right of way, um, like the councillor said earlier, uh, bet- a car between uh, a collision between a pedestrian and a car, the car is winning all the time. Councillor Holliday, uh, what would you like to leave us with? If I could leave a key message, I'd say to everyone that's listening, you know, think back to when you first learned to drive or were we're learning the role, uh, the rules of the road. You know, back in the day when you saw a yellow light and you tried to stop, or when the hand came up on the uh, the crossing at the at the light, you said, "You know what? I'm going to stop and wait for the next cycle." I think we just have to get back to that point, and somehow we've lost our way. But when we do, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a much safer and a much happier city. Toronto City Councilor Stephen Holliday and Toronto Police Sergeants Jason Kraft and Brett Moore. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa have rejected the idea of a prisoner exchange, which was floated as extradition hearings began in Vancouver for Huawei Chief Financial Officer Meng Wenzhou. She and her company have been charged with skirting American sanctions on Iran and stealing corporate secrets. Meng is being held in a luxurious form of house arrest, while Canadians Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig are suffering in extremely harsh conditions in Chinese jails. They've been held for well over a year in what most people see as retaliation for Meng's arrest. And there's no indication of any progress in the bid to release them. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canada-China relations. And Chuck Kwan is with the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. They joined Libby to talk about the latest developments. I think once we get into prison exchange, we fall into the same trap that uh, China wants us to be in. Basically, we just give up our sovereignty and say, here, 
you know, anytime we got your people, you take a couple of people and then we then do an exchange. This is unheard of in, in, in diplomacy, especially. Uh, it was interesting. I mean, it came, that idea came from Eddie Goldenberg, who was a senior advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And, uh, you know, we were seeing all kinds of things. There was a report that there were, uh, people paid to kind of demonstrate protest in favor of Meng Wanzhou at the hearing. Charles Burton, does any of that surprise you? Well, I mean, it really was sort of crazy where these uh, uh, Canadian actors were given the impression they were going to be movie extras and offered $100 to hold up these signs. Um, subsequently, the video of them was put on Chinese uh, state TV in their reports of the Hmong extradition hearing suggesting that there was extensive mainstream Canadian support for the release of Ms. Mung and that she was being treated in a way which is unjust. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's pretty pathetic um, that, that China is reduced to this kind of charade uh, to um, divert attention from the fact that, that Ms. Mung is being held on a serious charge of fraud against uh, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank it would have exposed them to um, serious damage to their capacity to to do international business through American banks, and um, and that if she is sent to uh, the United States, it's possible that facing a long prison sentence, she might strike a deal with the U.S. authorities, whereby she provides uh, clearer information about the exact relationship between the Huawei company and Chinese uh, security and intelligence. So. You know, um, I'm, I'm not surprised, but but I, I am disappointed that things can get to this kind of low point in our relations with China. Uh, China is a, being a bully, but it's also very used to orchestrating things. Uh, as you can see, for the protesters, are mostly for the domestic consumption, but also uh, a little bit for the Canadian public as well. But I think that the thing that we need to worry most and this comes from the prison exchange ideas that was, was floated by a segment of, of the, uh, I guess, business community, for lack of a better word. Uh, because there's a segment of society, uh, 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 former Prime Minister Chrétien also proposed this same prison exchange. Uh, so it's not surprising. Um, what they want to do is to have a maintain a good relationship with China so that the business can flow as usual. Um, the problem with that is that in doing so, you're giving up basically, I would say, our sovereignty in the sense of we, we just become a, a non-entity anymore if we start giving up, you know, doing prison exchange every time Chinese uh, get a hold of us. What they don't understand is that every single businessman, every single person in Canada could be at risk of being a pawn in the retaliation that Chinese game at the Chinese place. I think we should explore every single lever that we have. I mean, my, my pet peeve was that we, we haven't exposed a lot of Chinese wrongdoings to the Canadian public. So what, what happened is that the Chinese government is using these actors to, to, to show the Canadian public that, hey, there's support to free Wang Wangzhou and all this stuff. We're not playing the same level of, uh, you know, games uh, that the Chinese is. Okay, so uh, we're talking about Magnitsky sanctions, we're talking about Huawei, but maybe uh, we shouldn't allow Huawei notwithstanding. Charles Burton, 
Oh, I think that it would be unacceptable to the Canadian public for Canada at a time when the Chinese regime is holding two uh, Canadian citizens under harsh con- such harsh conditions to agree to make the concession and take the security risk of allowing Huawei to dominate the Bell and TELUS networks. And uh, in terms of leverage, I, I really don't think it should be leverage in the sense that if uh, if Kovrigan's favor were released, I don't think that it would be a good idea to to risk our national security and infrastructure by allowing a, a Chinese-dominated firm to have such control over uh, critical Canadian infrastructure. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canada-China relations. And Chuck Kwan is with the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. A health care emergency was declared in Brampton earlier this week. Brampton city councillors voted unanimously on this because of overcrowding and excessive wait times at the community's hospitals. The hope is that the declaration will help shake loose some urgent funding to relieve the pressure on frontline services. Libby Snymer's guests on this topic were NDP health critic France Jelena and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. One of the tools municipalities have is, is to declare an emergency uh, and a uh, public emergency. We saw it with ice storms in Toronto and we saw it with a snowstorm in St. John's, Newfoundland. It, usually you do it when there's a, a risk uh, of, of life, when uh, when human life is uh, in jeopardy. and. We felt that we met the thresholds there. It's pretty acute. Um, the underfunding of healthcare in Brampton hallway medicine isn't uh, abstract. It's not unusual. It's the norm. That's how patients are being treated. And we pay the same provincial taxes as everyone else. And we expect our taxes to provide quality services. You look at the beautiful new hospital that's being built in Vaughan or the one in, in Oakville, um, and it's difficult for us to appreciate why we have residents facing um, second-tier health care simply because they live in, in Brampton. And let me just give you an example of how bad it's become. If you look at what the province spends per capita on health care in Ontario, they spend about $1,900 per resident. In Brampton, it's only 936 so half of the provincial average. We have 55% fewer hospital beds per person than the provincial average. Right now, Brampton has 608 hospital beds just to catch up with the provincial average. Just to catch up, we need 800 additional beds, double what we have. And so governments at Queen's Park, uh, liberal and conservative over the last 15 years, have been asleep at the switch. And our council felt that it was important to raise a red flag and say we're sick and tired of it, that we, we, we deserve the same quality care in Brampton as, as they get elsewhere. What do you have to say to the health minister about that? My message to the health minister would be this, that in Canada we pride ourselves on having universal health care and that we don't have two-tier health care. Well, that's sadly not the case in Ontario today. We do have two-tier health care. And there's a level of care that is substandard in, in Brampton. Uh, if, you're, if you go to the beautiful new hospital in Oakville where they've got an adequate uh, ratio of, of beds uh, per population, um, then you have one standard of care. And then you go into a place like Brampton and it's, substantially different. And so um, the, my message is if we, if we really believe in a universal system, you can't have one part of the province or one municipality that um, is facing conditions that are acute and dramatically different. 
the health minister, Christine Elliott, was unavailable to respond to this. We hope to speak to her about it in the near future. But I reached NDP health critic, Francelina. So first of all, the city of Brampton has declared a health care state of emergency. What's your reaction to that? Actually, I'm not that surprised. Um, I have been following uh, the overcrowding in our hospital. I have been following uh, the growth of Brampton and the uh, slow pace at which uh, Peel Memorial is being redeveloped or how crowded uh, Brampton Civic is. I say it was just a matter of time uh, before they rang the alarm bell. It happened last night, and uh, for people who have been uh, admitted in the overcrowded hospital or have seek care at Peel Memorial and seen how busy it is, I'm sure it's no surprise to them either. Now, the health minister is not available to respond to this. If you ask her people, they point to various investments in Brampton, which, as you point out, aren't coming on stream very fast, but is still millions of dollars. So you have to realize that, yes, they give millions of dollars, for, tempor- for 56 temporary beds. Um, yes, those 56 temporary beds have helped, but this is no way to move forward. Those are temporary beds, often not well equipped to meet the needs of the healthcare system in 2020. I mean, the NDP has, has put it forward many times. We forced a vote on this on November 4th that say, put in your budget uh, money for a new hospital for Brampton because Brampton has grown in population exponentially and make sure that the money is there for the second phase expansion of Peel Memorial, which is an ambulatory care center right now. Uh, the PC government voted that down, uh, but they know uh, that uh, the issue in Brampton is dire and they know the solutions to fix it as well. NDP health critic Franz Jelena and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Now to a different topic in the same location of Brampton. It was Thursday morning when police say a case of road rage sent one driver to hospital. The incident took place at airport and Coventry Roads. The report was that two male drivers were in some sort of altercation when one driver got out of his vehicle and was struck by the other motorist. Constable Heather Cannon of Peel Regional Police joined Libby on Thursday to provide more details and to share tips on preventing road rage behavior on the streets. We received a call this morning just after 6.30 a.m., uh, for a call in the area that you had spoken about in Brampton, and it was for an altercation between uh, two drivers. Um, when we arrived, we did locate uh, one adult male who was suffering from injuries, and he was transported to a trauma center. Um, and at the time, uh, his injuries were considered uh, serious. Uh, they are considered non-life-threatening, though uh, they have been determined to be life-altering. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, my God, that's really bad. Yeah. So right now, uh, we were uh, continuing to investigate. Um, We have made an arrest. We have an adult male in custody um, at this time. Um, But we are still continuing to investigate the circumstances that uh, surrounded what exactly led to uh, what we're considering a a road rage incident. You know, how bad are road rage incidents uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, how often does something like this happen? 
Um, and it's, I think it's almost hard to measure. Um, I think sometimes uh, we'll see some stuff on social media, um, but sometimes it gets reported to the police and sometimes not. Uh, there are cases of road rage that, you know, potentially happen every day that don't necessarily get reported to police. And, uh, and that can be like several different reasons why. So the statistics on, say, road rage, which really is kind of, um, kind of a title that's been given to a certain kind of road uh, behavior that occurs between drivers on occasion, uh, but the statistics on it, um, it's kind of tricky. What do you recommend that people do? Because as you said, it could be anything that triggers it. What I encounter a lot is that sometimes people are, they cut you off aggressively. And I think uh, the, when I've spoken to people in the communities, especially when it has to deal with issues with, um, you know, drivers or engaging on people on our social media, um, people are really passionate about road safety, um, as are we. And I think the biggest thing, too, is realizing that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't drive according to your expectations. So unfortunately, you will have people on the road who will be rude or have an expectation of, um, you know, going faster than you on the roadway. Um, and I think ultimately, I think before you get behind the wheel of a car, you need to know that you are in a frame of mind of, you know, being responsible, being able to handle situations on the road, and really kind of almost planning. I think everybody that's going to get behind the wheel of, uh, of a car should actually have a plan for it. If somebody is going to, say, be aggressive um, in a vehicle on the roadway. How am I going to handle that? And uh, that actually is going to help people kind of um, build that into their driving plan because it's a fact. There, there will what be do you people... recommend, though? Uh, you know what? It may be as easy as just breathing, just taking a breath. Uh, but like I said, it, it may just be something that even if you have a dash cam video, that's already um, capturing the behavior that's occurring. So it could be in that instance that you pull over to the side of the road and you report that to police. Um, it, like I said before, you could drive to a police station or you can just completely disengage with that person and report it online. Anything else uh, that you have as advice for people? Um, I think ultimately, uh, I think everything that I've said pretty much, uh, you know, stands true. I, but I think, again, it's uh, just knowing that if you um, have a plan, I think that's the biggest thing is uh, making sure before you get behind the wheel of the car that I think you are mentally uh, able to sit there and say, okay, I can make good decisions. If you're mad about something, um, even if you're upset about something, that can actually still be a distraction for you and can cause you to be um, inattentive behind the wheel. So I think it's as... as or if a, you're late. I'm sorry? <laughs> or if you're late. Exactly. So if you, uh, there's a saying that says, you know, your poor planning is not someone else's emergency. And I think it comes down to, um, I think if you are running late or you have some issue with uh, time management at that point, I think people tend to take things personally um, if you're late, because now you're thinking that, wow, this person's probably going slow because I have to be somewhere. And that's what I think it means is before you start to put that car in drive that you realize, listen, I need to get somewhere safe because uh, you're also responsible for other people on the road. So your, the way you conduct yourself in that vehicle is not only going to keep yourself safe, but as well as other people on the roadway. 
Constable Heather Cannon of Peel Regional Police. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ashley in Brampton, who agrees with her city councillors that there is a health care emergency in her community. I'm 28 years old. I have lived in Brampton all my life. There really, really, truly is no exaggeration when it comes to the wait times and the level of care that you get when you go to Brampton Civic Hospital. You often feel like you are not even a human being. I have been going to the hospital on and off since 2007 uh, due to a motor vehicle accident where I broke my back. I would say 85 to 90% of the time you are in a hallway or a waiting room that is not only over capacity with patients, but over capacity with guests. Seats are taken up, tempers start to flare when the wait times are as long as they are. Honestly, the level of care that I get there, uh, I could honestly get that at any walk-in clinic that didn't give well, two cents about you. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.